Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Survivor Story Series episode, our guest is Nicole Lee, a survivor and disability rights advocate with a bachelor's degree in human services and who is also studying for her master's in social work. Nicole lived with her abuser husband for 10 years until 2014 when she left him. We speak with Nicole today about her experience as a rape and coercive control survivor, how her disability increased her vulnerability and reliance on her abuser for caretaking, and what other survivors with disabilities can do to help craft and navigate a path out of abuse while minimizing risk of harm. Throughout our conversation, we asked Nicole to share abuser tactics, signs of abuse, and upstander tips. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for having me. We haven't had any conversation about disability rights at the intersection of disability rights and family violence. First, just understanding you have a physical disability Is that something that happened prior to you meeting your ex-husband? Yes. So I had my accident back when I was eight years old and had my first spinal surgery when I was nine, so quite young. And then I met my ex-husband in my mid-20s. And how did the disability, the physical disability, play at all in terms of the relationship dynamics? Yeah, well, my my ex-husband did have a physical disability. He was an amputee, so quite mobile as far as people with disabilities go, if you you think about people with disabilities. So, um, and we met through disability sports. So I guess to start with it, it felt really that whirlwind kind of romance. Um, We felt like equals. But then, you know, I was the more disabled person in the relationship and, um, and, and we got pregnant very early on in our relationship as well. And he just sort of fell into the kind of caring role and started doing things for me. You know, so this was back in, say, 2004. So there was things like I used to go down to the post office to pay my bills. You didn't do it online. Not everybody had a computer in their house. So he took over all of that stuff, um, navigating the online world because he, didn't, he, he would say things like, I wasn't quite capable of doing those sorts of things. You know, he ended up falling into that role of carer for myself, especially once our son was born and he was more capable of doing stuff than I was. And it did end up over time, and this is the thing, it doesn't all happen all at once. Over time, it was a gradual breaking down of my independence because I was living independently with a young son before he moved in um, and I had other supports around, but slowly isolated from other supports like my family and, and, and friends to being completely reliant on him and this breaking down of my sense of being able to do things for myself as well. So breaking down of that confidence, feeling like I wasn't capable or smart enough to understand the internet, all of those sorts of bits and pieces. And that was a slow, gradual breakdown, you know, of my autonomy even and and my agency as, as an independent woman to the point where I was completely, completely reliant on him by the end of the relationship. And and the thing is, you know, um, with physical disability, for a lot of us, we, um, you know, we have a lot of um, mental health issues as well, especially if you've gone through the medical you know, world through as a young child, you might have trauma in your background from, you know, repeated hospital 
and surgeries and, you know, people taking control of your life at a young age and making decisions for you that you become this young adult that then has never really been taught that you're allowed to really speak up for yourself or that you're allowed to make decisions. And so, you know, I was very vulnerable to having somebody else just step in and take over that position for me. The mental health side of things also played a big impact on it as well, because then I wasn't stable enough to do things for myself. And that played into a lot of the gaslighting is that because he couldn't work because he had to look after me, but then also you're not stable enough. The terms, you're crazy. Um, you know, my nickname by the end of the relationship was Stupid Woman. So was this the first serious relationship you had or had you other relationships before your ex-husband? I'd had other relationships before my ex-husband and, and they weren't great. <laughs> so I was quite, you know, young. I was in my mid-20s and I'd had a few sort of previous relationships and then I had a relationship where I fell pregnant at quite a young age, at 18, my first son. You know, again, all of that, um, you know, I received a lot of stigma for being a young mother you know, I'd grown up with a disability. So, you know, I'd also grown up with things around me and people around me saying things like, it's going to take a really special man to want to love somebody like you. So not only was I disabled, but I was also a young mother with a young child. All of those things then played on this feeling of not deserving, not being good enough. And anybody that showed me attention, I should be really grateful for that attention. So relationships came and went. There was a lot of people you know, they weren't great relationships. They weren't abusive, but they weren't exactly caring and loving and respectful relationships. So I guess it's kind of like this conditioning where you just start to become used to expecting not being treated great and thinking that, you know, this is just the way relationships are and people just aren't really ever really that happy and, and you've got to work hard at being happy. And at least this person wants to be with me. So all of those things before going into this relationship, then also played into this relationship. So when things did start to turn, I actually started to internalise and blame myself. The gaslighting on top of that then also exacerbates that. The gaslighting plays into all of those things you've been told, into those fears as, you know, a woman with a disability being afraid of being alone, being afraid of not being wanted or not deserving. So you start to put up with or tolerate the little things that begin to happen and then those little things become bigger and bigger and bigger and you just start to really blame yourself because of all of this conditioning over, you know, a lifetime of disempowering experiences. I'm wondering when you first had the accident when you were younger, did you have any professional help in terms of therapy to help you sort out the trauma of that experience and 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 help you? Because I think you know, beyond having a disability, I think being part of any group in society, you know, that's disenfranchised, including women, (laughs) just being a woman, you know, requires that we have this additional help, this additional almost champion for us through mental health therapy, if you want to call it that, to uplift us in a way and reset where we belong in society, our value, right? So you talked a lot about your worth and being tied to obviously your physical abilities or disabilities to your being a young mother. And those are common narratives, especially the young mother part or being any mother, right? If you want to look for another relationship, um, children are considered a quote unquote burden. And that's Mm. been a reoccurring narrative in a lot of the survivors that we've spoken to. So I'm wondering how much of those narratives did you get support in reconstructing before you had these relationships? 
Yeah, so having my accident back in the mid-80s, there really wasn't much support at all, especially for young children, you know, so I was nine years old and there wasn't much, there wasn't even anything in the way of rehab for me at that age, let alone mental health support. I love my parents, (laughs) but my mum's very much of that generation. You pull your socks up and you get on with it, um, stiff upper, upper lip kind of thing. And you know, you just didn't complain. You didn't, um, you know, uh, voice any just, you know, concern or anything. You know, and, and and I remember, especially at a young age, and there wasn't really much support in in having to confront and deal with and face or work through what was going on. It was just you need to be a brave girl right now. That these things are going to happen. So you're told what's happening to you for one, and then you're told you need to be a good girl and be brave. So. You know, you don't complain, you don't make a fuss, even though things are hurting, you're petrified of all these things, but you, know, you keep it to yourself because you had to be that brave girl. And that brave girl then impacts your sense of being able to speak out or being able to say, no, I don't want to do this right now. Or, you know, your decision-making capacity has been impacted from a very young age. And that does play into or it has an impact on you as you get older. You know, and then being, you know, uh, growing up with a disability and you know, into my twenties, and and um, and and not feeling womanly, not feeling like I'm part of the woman tribe, like I wasn't allowed to really, you know, be, um, you know, I had to wear sensible waisted pants and shoes and things like that, and and not really courage to be, you know, express myself or be, you know, attractive or sexy because you're just the disabled woman. <laughs> And you get left out of a lot of all of those things, which is, um, and it's just expected and you don't question it as well. And it's not until I, um, my late, you know, sort of since I left this relationship that I started questioning all those things and I started unpacking that lifetime of, of things that, that influenced and, and, and impacted, but then also made me very susceptible to that relationship and, and really start to pull it apart and wonder where the points in time that made that difference. So your ex-husband, you said, was an amputee. Uh, yes. Does that was that from war or some <laughs> other experience? Yeah. So he he had cancer, um, you know, a lot a little bit later in life. Life. So he was a little bit he was older, and he'd only just acquired his disability when I met him, and he was going to sport as part of his rehab. Um, and you know, and he he was charming. He was great. Um, but then. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why, you know, sort of all those things like um, choosing me or picking me. But the other thing that really played into our relationship a long way along the line was that carers get put on a pedestal as being these self-sacrificing individuals that have taken on this disabled woman. So I had this, this world, this narrative of, you know, not only had this man survived cancer, um, which is amazing for anybody to survive cancer, I think that's, you know, but people around us or around him put him on this pedestal as being this great survivor. But then not only was he this survivor, he had then also chosen to take on this single mother with a disability. And then into the relationship, this cancer survivor who'd taken on this woman with a young child, had another child as well, and, and my mental health started to deteriorate. Nobody knew what was going on in the relationship, but then all they saw was this person they thought of as being so amazing, this survivor who stood by this woman whose mental health was slowly, slowly deteriorating and getting worse and worse. So I had this halo effect of, of this carer beside me that I didn't think that I could say anything about him that anybody would believe. 
Like, and then when everything did come out, the community around us, I lost so many friends. We lost all of his side of the family. So my children lost their grandparents, their aunties, uncles, cousins, everyone. Nobody wanted to believe it because they put this person on that pedestal. Also around things like um, not talked about that men with disabilities can be abusive. It's a less talked about thing and and less known thing. And, and every man's capable of violence, um, irrespective of disability, gender, you know, gender identity, sexuality, all of those things, um, or, you know, and race and everything and culture. So having to try and impact all of that narrative was incredibly, incredibly difficult when everything did actually come out. But it just left me in a position where I honestly, because everybody thought he was wonderful, I always thought that I was the problem. When your ex-husband, when you talked about your ex-husband's tactics and how he was trying to undermine your sense of worth, self-worth and value, the things that he said to you, do you think that he had any particular insight, better insight into what would be harmful to you because of his own disabilities versus the other men that you've dated? Was there anything in particular about his own security projecting it onto you? Was there no differentiation? The pattern was pretty consistent. When people use emotional and psychological tactics, there's a pattern to that. Yeah, it was all very similar. I don't think there's much in the way you can differentiate apart from the fact that a lot of the abuse as well you know, so all the same forms and tactics that you would see in a relationship without disability, but is disability targeted forms as well. So around the fact that I, you need me to live, you need me to look after the kids because, you know, you'll lose them. They'll take the children off you because you're just not mentally or physically capable of looking after them, very much targeted at my mental health and my physical disability not only are you experiencing all of those forms of, of abuse and coercive control and, and gaslighting, but it's also very much targeted at your disability to further break you down. And for me, I always wanted to feel that it wasn't conscious on his behalf, but that's me. I'm probably giving too many liberties, <laughs> I think. You know, there has to have been some form of conscious choice on his behalf to target those things, to look at those things. And and to say the things that he was doing, um, you know, I think for me to think that that was all subconscious, I think is too hard to bear, um, that somebody could not actually knowingly know what they were doing to somebody. So I don't know, maybe a few, a few too many liberties and, and, and my way of coping with what was happening. And I think there was a lot of um, also to do with disability on his behalf, a lot of feeling emasculated. And, you know, and this is just me speculating from what I knew about him was that, you know, he'd, he'd, lost his, he'd lost his leg to cancer and did that play into a lot of feeling less like a man? And when he moved in with me, I owned the house. My parents had gifted that to me. So my children and I had somewhere to live, which was incredibly generous and helped us, I guess, survive financially for a very long time. But, you know, that feeling of um, very, you uh, know, hegemonic masculinity and all of those roles and him not playing into those roles further, I guess, enraged, infuriated, frustrated him um, more so than maybe other men as well. <laughs> so my phone is on silent, but I can't make. Um, so what was I saying? Oh, so. 
I, I think this, this theme of, actually, let me just lower this a little. Hold on. Oh, no, I can't put that on airplane mode because I need that for my Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah, no, you don't have to do anything. Don't worry. Just no, leave no, it as I, is. I usually put my phone on an airplane mode, but my home Ooh. Wi-Fi is down, so I'm using it as a hotspot. Technology's great. NBN <laughs> <laughs> in Australia is disgusting. <laughs> that theme of emasculation impacting being a trigger for abuse, I think also shows up in a lot of the research from the authors that I've interviewed. So Jess Hill, one of your, your compatriots, she wrote in her book, See What You Made Me Do, about this concept of shame. And I don't know if you've, done, you've heard, read the research on it. I have not, but she has a whole chapter on it. All of it is really based on male entitlement, right? Male entitlement yeah. to domination, to being, having power over. And if that sense of entitlement is somehow diminished because there's an experience that makes you less than or perceive yourself as less than, then you take it out, you know, potentially on someone else through violence or um, course of control, power and control. Um, and so what were, I mean, and given that this is something that you, now you and I, both as survivors and advocates, know so well, how can we, how can we better educate the public about it? You, you were with your abuser, ex-husband for 10 years, and during that mm. time, just to confirm, are you saying that nobody in your family, nobody who observed your relationship could at any point pinpoint that he was a problem? It was just you deteriorating and, and that was it? I think my, people did pinpoint it, but nobody would talk about it. Um, my mother had um, picked up on bits and pieces and she tried to get people involved and was told that um, until I wanted to do something, there was nothing that she could do. Um, like she did have concerns. Um, but then that's also coupled with, well, if she doesn't have him there looking after her, then who's going to help her? Who's going to look after our daughter and her two children? Is it going to land on them? And, and they're much older as well. So they picked up on bits and pieces and they had seen me deteriorate um, and thought that, you know, he had a role to play in it. I don't think they knew it was extreme and as bad as they thought, um, but they had an inclining that was there. The interesting thing that I, I heard from um, my cousin, I, I have two adopted um, Aboriginal cousins, First, First Nations people adopted into my family. And one of my cousins had, you know, I think family had been talking and my cousin had was talking to her partner. So she'd been brought up in a white family and, you know, dating and, you know, an Indigenous man from, you know, community and had said, oh, you know, this is happening for my cousin um, we're not really sure, but, you know, we think this is what's going on. And he was like, okay, well, we need to go around there and talk to him. <laughs> we need to go confront him and we need to sit him down and like they do, he'd do in his community. And my cousin turned around and said, oh, my God, you don't understand what white fella law is like. We just talk about it behind her back. <laughs> we don't actually go in there and say anything. So that was actually really confronting for me to know that, you know, there was talk and conversation going on in my family. But, again, that whole... Nobody wants to open the can of worms. Nobody wants to say anything. We'll all just sort of rumble about it in the background and, and wait for this disempowered person to suddenly make an empowered move and then wonder why she's failing. So that difference in culture was, you know, I, when she brought out with that, that was, was really quite eye-opening for me. 
Can you describe some of the behaviors that they observed that they characterized as quote unquote deterioration? They noticed the I wasn't allowed to see my family as much. Um, he was always angry about going to visit my family because he didn't like them. So um, they saw my children a lot less, um, and that was slowly broken down over time. And then with you know with me and and my mental health was that I had developed anorexia quite severely, and I was in and out of hospital a lot. So my mental health went downhill quite quickly and quite drastically. So. I would assume with anorexia, there's real physical risk as well. So was there any conversation with the medical professionals that treated you around what the causes of this were? Yeah, yeah, there was. So I had um, a psychiatrist that I used to see weekly and I was confiding with him what was happening in my home. So if something had happened and, and I'd go in there and I'd cry and I'd tell him everything. But of course, you've got doctor-patient confidentiality. He had nothing nobody that he could go to unless I was willing to do it. So all he could do was keep reiterating to me, Nicole, this is violence. You don't deserve to live like this. You know, we can get somebody to speak to you. You know, what is it you'd like to do? And I kept and I kept saying, no, I'm not ready. I don't want to. I don't want to talk to someone. I don't want to tell anyone. We can't call the police. Because, again, I'm afraid that I'm the one with mental health problems. I'm the one in hospital. I'm the one refusing to eat. If we get authorities involved, they will take my children. Because he keeps telling me, they will take your children. So the barriers to leaving, a lot of them were internal to me. So all of those things that are being brought up in me around not being capable, lose your children, not a good mother, were barriers he'd created within myself to keep me stuck as well. I had several suicide attempts within the relationship as well because I couldn't see any other way out of this relationship. And... That also played into people being afraid of if he's not there, what's going to happen to her? Because at that point, I wasn't really very capable of looking out for myself. I couldn't make decisions for myself. By the end of this relationship, I had no personality. It was that bad that I'd been stripped of every ounce of who I was and every decision I made was what I thought was going to keep him happy. So it didn't even look like I'd be willing to really work with anybody by that point. You know, when you think of people being completely broken in every sense of the word, I was incredibly, completely broken by the end of that 10 years. And at some point near the end, there were a series of sexual assaults and rapes that escalated and led you to seek an order of protection. Can you talk about events that preceded that? Yeah. So about a little less than a year before all of that, my husband had um, forced the sale of the property that my parents had given to me and bought a new house, put us in debt. Um, you know, he sold my house and bought a new one with my money, without my permission. You know, he bought paperwork into a mental health facility for me to sign. During all of this, the ward I was in had started to realise what was going on and he confessed in a family therapy session that he'd been raping me. At no point did anybody call for help. They didn't call police in to provide any help at that point. So, you know, things went on. I'm in this position. My house is on the market. We've bought another one. I'm financially stuck now as well. So then that last year, the sexual violence escalated quite extremely. So it had always been there for the whole relationship since not long after the birth of our son, but it, it, it ramped up for some reason once we moved house, once it was further away from family, it was completely cut off from friends. And that last year was 
was quite extreme. And then it had gotten to a point where I'd been assaulted four times in the one week. You know, he'd, he'd raped me four times that week and um, I had decided that I honestly couldn't live like that anymore. So I did take an overdose um, that night and my oldest son found me where he'd left me on the floor in the kitchen and rolled me on my back to die. My son called an ambulance for help. And this is, this is one of the major turning points was when the ambulance arrived, he refused to give them my details. He refused to get up and help. So I was taken to the emergency department and the next day, uh, you know, the mental health workers came in and asked me you know, what had happened. So they asked that very direct question, why did you do this? And I told them, my husband's raped me four times this week. I don't want to live like this anymore. They offered for me to go to a refuge. Of course, my children are here. Again, I will lose my kids. I can't go to a refuge. I'm the one in here for an overdose. Jesus, what will people think? And then um, at some point in that emergency department, somebody called Child Protection and they got authorities involved for the first time in all of this. Somebody took that decision away from me and chose to get authorities involved. So eventually we had Child Protection come to the house and question us what was happening. And he was, he was open and he just said, yeah, sure, sure, all men do this. And compared to her last partners, I'm a god, which was really, really shocking to me. Uh, <laughs> I'd never heard him utter what he was doing to anybody outside of the house. So for him to say this in front of child protection workers was quite shocking. And so then that preceded the police being involved and the police stepped in, put an intervention order on him and removed him from the house and, and started that process. And that was that was the catalyst for everything changing. And at that point in time, there's some of the most scariest moments in my life was when all of that happened. How old was your your older son when he discovered your... He was 16, so quite young. Yeah, so my, my son was 16 when he found me. And when you said that the doctors at the hospital asked you, why did you do this to yourself? And you said I had been raped four times this past week. First, is rape illegal in Australia? Is marital rape yeah. illegal? Yeah, marital rape is illegal. Okay. Yeah. So if that's the case, that was the catalyst for having them call the police? Um, no, the catalyst was for them calling child protection because there were children in the house and they were concerned that they might be exposed to family violence within the home. It's not, um, if I was under the age of 18, that's um, mandatory reporting, but because I was over 18 and I was refusing help, nobody was under any obligation to call anyone or do anything. So it was the fact that there was children here that brought in that element of we need to get authorities in because there's young children in there under 18 that need to be protected. And that's one of the gripes that I have a lot with the system is that, you know, if it's just the woman being abused, if, she, if it's her choice to stay there and continue to be abused, who are we to tell her what to do? But they're not seeing that your ability to make independent decisions your autonomy has been so broken down. And like I said earlier, every decision I made was what I thought was going to keep him happy. So that meant not having people involved, you know, not having authorities come around. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted and I knew I didn't want to, but it was what was going to keep this volatile, violent person calm. And I had to do everything I possibly could. So every decision I made was a decision I thought he'd want me to make. So he owned my autonomy. So we talk about women's empowerment and I'm not going to tell a woman what to do. But the thing is, when the police stepped in and, I'm, you know, and this isn't true for everybody in violent relationships, but especially for me, 
when the police stepped in and chose to take that choice to leave away from me, they didn't take that really away from me. They didn't take away my autonomy. They took it away from him because he owned it. And they slowly afterwards, services became involved and helped me regain my agency and refine my autonomy and independent independent decision-making capacity. That the police didn't take something away from me. They, I'm really like adamant that they took that away from him and gave it back to me. And for some women, we need that. I would never have gotten up and said, yes, I'm leaving. I would either have gone, left that relationship via taking my own life or eventually he would have done it for me. You acted out of, out of survival. You were basically, you know, all your choices were about survival. And so I want to get back to that in a moment, but there was something unique about what you said, which is that you were, you were offered to go to a refuge, which is a shelter here, but because you were afraid that you couldn't bring your children or there, there are yeah. no family refuges there? I know that now there is, but at no point did somebody say, we can go and pick up your children and bring them with you. I see. I would go, the children would stay here with him and that would be, I would never, I thought I would never see them again. At no point did anybody say anything to counteract all of those fears that were built up inside me. At no point did somebody say, I can see that you're really scared right now, but it's okay. We can get your children. We can get you all safe and and we can support you to look after and we can support you to keep them as best we can. We can get people involved that can help you. Nobody said that. We can get disability services that can help you even stay in the refuge. I'm thinking to myself, is the refuge accessible? Who's going to look after me in the refuge if I'm there by myself? I can't do this and I don't have anybody else. At no point did they alleviate any of those fears around, you know, not being able to survive. So, of course, I turned it down, you know, as most people would. But if somebody had said something differently or actually pointed out all of these fears that you've got or you might have, we've got all of these things we can put in place and now are you ready to go? And at that point, I, you know, I sort of, if I look back and at that point, I probably would have said, yes, yes, go pick up my children. Yes, I want to leave. Well, what was struck me is that eventually the police had your ex-husband removed. Yes. And that seems to be very unusual because the model is that women have to leave and seek refuge in a shelter and the abuser gets to stay in their home and stay put and have stability. And then they also, in many ways, gain an advantage if they go through family court because they're the ones with the stable home versus the victim who ha- who's unstable in and maybe necess- not necessarily a safe place because shelters can be dangerous as well. Or couch surfing and facing homelessness as well. Exactly. So what made that possible as an option? Um, well, I don't know why the police chose to do that. I guess um, <laughs> I'm not sure we owned our own home and 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 one day they um you know they did a little bit of digging they you know child protection spoke to the children, and they called us both into the station there together because they thought if they could get him coming in willingly that that would be better than picking him up by force. So they brought us in together. They took him one way and took myself the other way and sat me down and just said, okay, we're interviewing him in relation to what he's told child protection. Do you have the car keys? Can you drive yourself home because he will not be going back home to that house. And I'm sitting there begging them not to for all of those things I'm afraid of. I can't look after the children in the home by myself. What am I going to do? And I'm begging them, you can't do this. He's my carer. 
And they just kept saying, you know, we're really sorry. We know you're scared. We know you want him to change. But in our experience is that these men don't change and that I know you can't see this right now, but this is the best decision for you at this point in time. And he will reoffend. We know that. And we can't let him into that house with you knowing that he'll reoffend. We wouldn't be doing our job properly. So they removed him. They removed him from the home and sent me with the keys back home to, you know, by myself. Child protection picked up my children, brought them home. It's yeah, one of the most confronting, confronting days of my life, just going through my head, what am I going to do? How am I going to survive? How are we going to live? Um, how am I going to pay my bills? All of those things. So yeah, normally men would, you know, the woman would be removed and because I guess maybe the police because it was a police intervention order and they took the action so they removed him rather than removing myself and the children as they had us both there. And how did you survive? How did you manage to pay the bills and and stay? Oh, it was very hard. (laughs) Yeah, incredibly, incredibly hard. So to start with, no, we didn't. We didn't thrive at all. So nobody at that point in time, so this is before a lot of the reforms happened here in Victoria, so many things have changed. But, um, you know, they sent me home and at no point did anybody ask, so we've removed your carer from the home, what are your immediate needs right now? Um, What do you need help with? They just left us here. And unfortunately, you know, for like the first eight weeks, I couldn't have a shower. I couldn't open my back door to feed my dogs because the back door was so broken. It couldn't be opened. So, you know, my son would have to go around the gate and feed them. I couldn't get the kids to school. And we were failing. All the things he told me that I was a bad mother, I won't cope, you're not going to be able to do this, were coming true. Um, All of those fears he'd built up in me were starting to become true. And in my desperation, eventually I went to, you know, authorities to child protection and and just sat there and cried and begged them and just said, I can't do this. I'm not surviving. I can't have a shower. I can't look after my children. I need to go into that court and have the intervention order lifted because I don't know any other way to survive. It wasn't until that point in time that my child protection worker just sat there and just said, you know, we've got disability services in this building. I'm going to walk up to that floor. I'm going to ask them some questions around what to do. And that's where everything changed. So I took a huge risk saying to child protection, I'm going to have the order lifted, which would have, you know, could have set off them removing the children. It didn't. So she at least went and asked some questions, went up there and and went to the disability department and said, we've got a disability family violence crisis initiative package she can access you can access this for her right now so it's nine thousand dollars or whatever I think it was about that much at that time over the course of 12 weeks does she need someone to come in and shower her tonight do we need a support worker to come in this evening tomorrow what does she need when does she need it we'll do this right now that was the turning point for me that was a massive massive turning point that took eight weeks and be going to the system and begging Um, But that turning point, and I say this for a lot of people with a disability and other women with disabilities, is that I was so reliant on him to live and survive. It wasn't until somebody showed me that there was another way to live. I'd been denied what what services were available to me in, in the community, what help I could have coming into the home. I wasn't allowed to have any help. So you only know what you know. And it wasn't until somebody said, we can get these services to come in and support you to stay there independently and look after your children and and support you in your role as mother. And they showed me another way to live and that I could survive. And so once they took that 
physical need of this person, I was then able to have the space to start to unpack and realize, okay, I don't need you. Do I want you? And that's when I started to realize like, no, no, I don't want you unless you went and got help and unless you changed yourself. I don't want you back in my life. And that was, you know, like, I guess, you know, the second turning point as well. So that stream of events, they took away that need and that reliance on him physically. And then I was able to differentiate the, the, you know, the difference between need and want. And, and no, I didn't want him in my life and started to really, you know, push back on, on him and his, because he was kept, you know, making contact and saying to me, you need me, I need to come home. You need to let me home. You need to tell them this needs to happen. You need to do X, Y, and Z because you need this. And then I was able to push back and say, actually, no, no, you go get help and I'll think about it, which then erupted all of that rage. Yeah. The first turning point is that you actually were able to access help through disability services. And then through that help, the second turning point was when you realized that there was this shift in your mindset that you didn't need your ex-husband. His planting of that idea into your head was only that it was an idea and that because you didn't need him, you could survive without him and you were able to make that choice freely to not live with him. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so how do we get other women who are in this situation, whether they have a disability or not, to make that shift in mindset when they're so entrenched in this self, in this belief that they depend on their partner, Mm. whether it's financially or otherwise, that if my partner, like you said, if my partner is not in the home, how do I pay my bills? How do I manage childcare and my bills and my two jobs? How do you, what, what, what can we say or do to help survivors who are in that headspace? Validate those fears. You know, really sit there and, and it will take time. So you'll have to spend, especially for you know, women with disabilities, is that it's, you'll have to spend more time working with them, more holding of their hand and guiding them so no judgment, not being forceful, but just constantly, I know you're scared. So words like that, I know you're scared. I know this is terrifying and I know this is not what you want. So those kind of statements that validate somebody's fears and worries um, that's going on inside them and, and, and putting in place those support services. So, you know, for a lot of us, we've been denied knowledge of our rights. We've been denied knowledge of what we're entitled to. So sitting with the person and saying and letting them know what services are available, making phone calls with them, so walking people through the conversations with the different services. You know, it, it's going to take time, it's going to take investment and it's going to take um, supports. So for me, I had to be shown. So if somebody could have sat there and told me until I was blue in the face, oh, but you can do this, you can have this. And until somebody sat down and, and worked through those systems as well and, and helped me navigate those hurdles to get services involved in the house because I wouldn't have been capable of jumping them at that time that that was you know all of those turning points so it's going to take time investment emotional investment and financial investment to sit there and slowly rebuild somebody's life and surround them with as many supports as possible so for a long time I needed a lot more support around the home than what I need now because um, to slowly reteach me or to reintroduce me into all of those things that I used to be capable of doing and to build that confidence within myself that I was capable of doing those things that, you know, I could pay a bill, you know, how to manage my budget even because I'd been denied access to all of that. I'd been denied access to how to use a computer 
or how to you know, navigate the internet. So somebody just sitting down and spending that time just walking me through all of these things that were so terrifying. What role did your friends and family play during those first eight weeks when your ex-husband was out of the house? Um, not a lot, really, not a lot. We were left here a lot alone on our own, the children and I. So my brother and sister, you know, they live a lot further away and they've got their own stuff going on in their lives. And you know, my parents are a lot older, so they couldn't come around every day. So that first eight weeks was, was very hard. It was incredibly hard. You know, my family around me sort of dealing with the shock of, of what was going on themselves, the support from his family completely gone. So, you know, things like going to court. I had a friend come the very first time, but then after that it was myself. I just went on my own. So attending court on my own, navigating this on my own, you know, not wanting to be a burden on my family that I'd been a little bit estranged from. So, you know, in the past, you know, the things that I'd been told and the things that were going on was that I had pushed my family away a lot and I had said some horrible things to my mother where our relationship was a little bit broken as well. So, you know, at that point in time, they, they, they weren't really there and, and it was confronting for them. So they had their fears of how I was going to survive. It was very confronting for them. I was still very, very unwell. I was still, you know, not eating. You know, my mental health, my physical health was still quite poor at that point in time. So a lot of the children and I navigating on our own, which is, I still think back and I don't know how I did it, but the human will to survive is quite great. And, and we did, we did. It wasn't pretty, but we did, we got through. You, you talked about this concept of, which I, I love, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone say this, this concept that, and correct me if I'm not phrasing it accurately, that when people asked you if you had the desire to leave or if you wanted to leave, that it's not that they took the choice from you, it's that they took the choice from your ex-husband because you didn't have a choice at that point. And so I think that's a very interesting concept because I agree with that. I certainly experienced that in my own situation. And it's through that lens that I do this work. But on the other hand, you juxtaposed it with the system and people who work in family violence intervention services and how they want to give survivors and victims autonomy, right? They want to give them agency. And so how do people who are in that role, how are they able to differentiate whether someone really has some level of agency versus whether someone doesn't. And it's, it's giving the abuser the choice and to navigate not being paternalistic, in other words. I guess it's around, you know, how long somebody has been in a relationship for. So for, if it's only been a few months, then there's a good chance that, you know, a few months to a year, then there's a good chance that the, that, that person's ability to make choices for themselves hasn't been too broken down or completely broken down. If somebody's been in a relationship for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, you're talking so much control, so much coercion, so much gaslighting that there's a good chance that that person has had, you know, a lot of their ability to, to make those decisions for themselves, um, you know, taken away over time. And, and like I said before, you only know what you know. So it's around informing people. So just sitting down without judgment and just talking through what somebody's rights are you know, just little bits and pieces, you know, um, you know, um, for me, it was what disability services, what right I had to access those services. I didn't know about those things. So it was somebody sitting down talking to me about like, oh, well, we can get somebody to come in. You're allowed to do that. You know, working slowly with someone to build them back up again, to understand that that whole 
know, talking with somebody and reserving judgment. Some of the best things I heard, which were some of the most confronting things too. So sometimes you do have to um, hear some of the things you don't want to hear. And sometimes it might be a matter of a worker just, you know, without judgment, but just stating some facts. So the police saying things to me around like, you know, we know you want him to change, but maybe one in a thousand men will change. And we really, really hope for you that your husband is one of those men that will change. But I can tell you right now that in all the years that I've been doing this job, I've never seen a man change. And we're really sorry about that. So again, so confronting truths that I had to hear that didn't come with any judgment of me, but then just just stated that. And I had to sit there and I had to take all that stuff on board. And I had to let stuff digest. So at times, so it's going to take time. It's like patience and time and and sort of like that holding somebody's hand, working through it and, and just acknowledging, I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid to make that decision. And I know this is scary and, and, and terrifying, but you need to trust me. So it's not telling somebody what to do. It's working with somebody to make those steps towards those decisions. So empathy, non-judgmental, and sometimes some hard facts and truths in there that are backed up with, you know, statements like you know I'm sorry I know you want this to happen but you know these are the facts so that's not blaming the individual for not being able to see it it's just like well these are just the facts and we're really sorry that they're the facts and we you know would love to see this turn out well for you but we really don't think that it will and so that's not blaming that individual it's just it's it's you know sort of putting it back on those facts and and walking somebody through it and giving them time to take it in digest it and let it sink in for a bit. The ideas that you're offering, they're not compatible with the current structure of how nonprofits work and how law enforcement work, right? So I've never heard a police officer being that patient and giving data mm. like that. You know, if anything, there's, you know, this stereotype that that police officers are annoyed when there are domestic violence calls because they victim blame and mm. they don't understand that it's you know, that that it takes many seven to nine times to leave an abusive relationship, right? And so there's that level of almost contempt for the survivor, for the victim that is so prevalent. And and so that's one thing that I hear that's different. Maybe this is Australia, maybe you or maybe you had a very different experience. The other is just nonprofit agencies in this space, they're not funded to basically be there for you on a long-term or indefinite basis. They're there to provide specific acts of assistance, whether it's filing an order of protection or giving you a a set of mental health services or classes that you enroll in, and that's it because they're underfunded and understaffed. And so are you saying that we should be changing our law enforcement and Nonprofit <laughs> services that the systems yeah. need to change in those ways. Yeah, I would absolutely. Yeah, definitely would say that those things need to change. I'm I'm lucky in Australia that because the violence was sexual in nature, that a um, what we call a socket unit, so um, a sexual assault and child abuse investigation team. So these was a group of detectives that were quite skilled in in understanding all of this. It wasn't just a uniform officer, which a lot of people do come across, which. You know, I probably would have received, you know, not a very great response and I would have pushed back on them and I probably wouldn't have been willing to work with them. But I received this team that had a greater understanding, that knew what was going on, they knew my fears 
and were able to say certain things. But then when it came to the system, you know, back then at that point in time, you know, it wasn't a great system. Um, it took a long time to really stumble across some support workers, you know, some different workers that, you know, were good. So, you know, it was the disability um, services that, be, that that came into the house that made a huge difference around understanding my way of, of living I had child protection involved, so I had a, a child protection order, which meant that I had these people involved in my life for 12 months. I think I was lucky. I copped a really good worker who did spend a lot of time sitting down with me. So it was maybe an hour a month just sitting down, talking through it with me and became quite a good ally. When I realised that, oh, they aren't bad child-stealing monsters and I, they are willing to work with me and help me, um, but if I had have gone the other direction, child protection wouldn't have been anywhere near as nice. But yet we do, I know um, workers are under a lot of pressure to close cases. They're under a lot of pressure to get people out of immediate danger. It was a long period of time of me seeking help, of me finding another service, of me constantly saying, no, no, I still need help, I need support. Um, so I did spend a lot of time tiring, navigating the system, looking for people to help, looking for a different service, looking for a different program that might help me in my, uh, to rebuild my parenting ability, to work through my mental health. Private psychiatrist was also really good. You know, our system does need to allocate more time, more funding, more resources to do this work, especially for, for women with disabilities, because that is what we need. Police do need a greater understanding of coercive control. They do need a greater understanding of, of, the, of how violence makes people behave, react. As victims, you know, trauma, um, the impact of trauma is, you know, fight and flight. Um, fear can very much look like aggression and can come across as aggression. I know I came across aggressive sometimes. Luckily, I had people that understood why I was aggressive. But fear can come across as aggressive and then you get labelled as difficult to work with. Yeah, so, so all of those understandings, we really need us, our frontline workers to be skilled in, 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 in knowing them and understanding them. You talked about coercive control, which shows up in a lot of our conversations with survivors and in our conversations with advocates who are advocating for, also are in conversations with our advocates who are in support of criminalizing coercive control. It's been criminalized in parts of Great Britain. and certain states in this country, in the U.S., are also working towards that. I myself am engaged in that with some of my fellow survivors and advocates. What are your thoughts about course of control and criminalizing it? I think it's something that definitely needs to be worked towards and, and to be done. I think we also need to make sure we're incredibly cautious around how we do it. I have a lot of fear around coercive control laws being used against victims. There is a huge amount of fear there. I don't know what it's like in America, but in Australia, the burden of proof on victims to prove what happened is, is quite great and, and quite large and um, there's a lot of burden on that. And, and that it's, you know, in our courts, it's hard to be believed around physical assaults or who's to blame around, you know, consent law, you know, consent around rape and all those sorts of things that, it's quite hard in Australia. Uh, with um, we have a very patriarchal court system. I'd love to call me too on many of our courts, and <laughs> their decisions are quite disgusting. But I just have reservations that it is quite difficult to secure a conviction when you have evidence of physical assaults, let alone things around coercive control. When it starts to become subjective, in our courts, are, we've got a lot of work to do on our courts. It was only 2004 in Victoria that we bought that the law of provocation was brought down 
um, by a friend of mine, Phil Cleary. So in 2004 in Victoria, you could still be blamed for your murder. You're kidding. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> he's a, you know, his sister, um, Vicky Cleary, 32 years ago, the murderer of her who stalked her and murdered her in the street, her ex-boyfriend who was abusive, was then given a defensible homicide, so a defensive provocation in that it was her fault that he murdered her because she had the you know, audacity to leave him. So that was only 32 years ago. The last case in Victoria was 2004 where the wife had left and the husband got off on manslaughter for provocation on a much reduced sentence because she'd left him and she'd shamed him. So we'd only, we've only just brought down that law. So the thought of bringing in things like coercive control, which does need to happen, there's a lot of other changes I think need to happen in our court system as well. That's true. In the US, in our efforts in New York, we are not just trying to criminalize coercive control against the victim, but also coercive control against the children so that when women go to family court, for example, that the behind the scenes manipulation that's being enacted can be also part of the narrative because otherwise, as you said, you can't protect your children, then you're not going to want to leave. And, yeah. and so that's definitely one piece, but I agree with you that we need to look at other laws that may contradict the intention mm -hmm. of coercive control, but then use the existing laws to mutually strengthen coercive control and have coercive control mutually strengthen existing rape laws and stalking laws and other laws that can be used. What are your thoughts around understanding coercive control? For me as a survivor, once you've experienced it, once you've been exposed to it, you can identify it. And so it's really just a matter of understanding the patterns. And if people understand the patterns, it's hard to misidentify the victim and the perpetrator. I, I guess it more comes down to, um, yeah, once you understand the patterns, once you can see them, you can see them in, in multiple different things. Um, but it's one of those things like it's very, it, without evidence, without physical proof and evidence, that's the thing I think will be a sticking point in our courts, especially with our judges as well, where, you know, an actual physical assault can sometimes be deemed as not enough evidence. You know, I, I think greater education, a rehash of looking at a lot of our laws, the scary and unfortunate thing we've got in Australia is uh, what we're seeing happening at the moment, which also brings up my apprehension is that perpetrators are starting to get in first as being the one that's victimised. So they'll, call, they'll assault their partner, lock themselves in the room, call the police and say, she attacked me. And then we are having more and more instances where women are getting slapped with intervention orders. Women are being removed from the home. And that's, that's a huge trend that's, you know, big, big scary thing that's happening at the moment. And it just sort of worries me around... Um, Will perpetrators use this as a new tactic and start to say, well, she was coercively controlling me rather than the other way around? Because they're very manipulative at bending the truth. They're very good at playing the victim. And there needs to be safeguards in all of these things around, you know, how to identify who is the aggressor. And that's becoming an emerging issue in Australia, definitely around, you know, police turning up to an incident and you know, she may have bruises, but then he was saying he might say X, Y, and Z, and so they end up arresting the woman because they're just so good <laughs> at 
Yeah, and that's definitely happening in the U.S. as well. And I think it also points to this, the fact that our criminal justice system is based on single incident crimes, right? But if we're looking at a relationship holistically, as coercive control does allow, then those nuances will get played out eventually because law enforcement will be forced to look at and interview, hopefully, collateral witnesses that can back up that there's one person who's feeling intimidated or threatened and scared and isolated and all these other tactics and the other person doesn't. You know, the other person has the power. It's really about who has the power. I'm still obviously in favor of it, but with all of these cautions. Yeah, I'm very in favor of it, but I know the impact of my mental health played a lot into my thing. So, you know, I had my husband who was going around telling people about my mental health. When we first moved to our new house, he went out in the street and told our neighbors that, oh, Nicole's really unwell, she's got anorexia. You know, she has these outbursts. So there was this constant gaslighting me to people around us, his friends, his family. I was this horrible woman that was so crazy that he was sitting by. So it would have been, when I looked to it, it actually probably would have been quite easy for him to make this or make up this pattern of him being the victim and I was the one who was coercively controlling him. I just have those fears around them being used against. And the fact that they don't do a lot of these things in front of anyone, it was all very much behind closed doors. So when we went out of the house, everybody thought he was lovely. He was wonderful. They never saw any signs of it. It's all of that, you know, what my children and I saw were completely different to what everybody else saw. Let's look at other possibilities then. If you mentioned your cousin Mm. who, who talked about how the Indigenous community uses restorative justice, basically, there's a community level accountability that exists. And they're, they're going to go and confront the person and enforce somehow, I guess, through exile, the person who is doing harm from the community. Number one, is that something you would have wanted? And number two, do you think it would have worked? I would have wanted it in some ways. I would have, in hindsight, probably it would have been a good thing because it would have validated, because I knew deep down inside what was going on. I needed other people around me to validate. So I had all of those intrinsic things building up inside of me. I needed some extrinsic messages. So outside of me, messages that, um, you know, I wasn't going crazy. This was actually happening. But in the same vein, um, all of those fears around not being capable as a mother I would have been very scared as well um, that other people know what was happening. I would have been scared that, um, you know, things would have escalated as well. And I think they probably would have escalated once, you know, what have been telling people? Why do they know this? How dare you? you know, all of those X, Y, Z things. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a bit mixed. I don't know whether or not I would have been at that point in the right space to hear it, which is difficult. It's really difficult. But I would have heard it. I probably would have pushed it away. But I would have taken those things on board inside and those things would have started to gel with the things I was already thinking and feeling and those things would have built up and built up and built up inside me. And, you know, like you said earlier, all of those things around, I mean, it takes nine times to leave every time somebody validates or every time somebody points out what they're seeing, those things plant seeds inside the victim as well and those seeds end up growing and growing and eventually five, six, seven times down the track when somebody says, you don't need to live like this, you you deserve better, or this is violence, Nick. 
you know, what you're experiencing is violence. It is coercive control. It's not okay. And I would have pushed them away going, no, that's silly. But those things would have grown inside me and they would have sat there and they would have built up. And the next person that comes along, they put another seed in there and another one and another one. And eventually you're like, okay, all right, yes, 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 they are right. I do need to leave. I am going to seek help. So it's that slowly, the nine times somebody takes to leave, every time if somebody's giving them those truths, eventually those truths become so great. You can no longer ignore them because they match so much with what you're feeling inside. You know deep down that all of those fears, all of those doubts sort of push your own thoughts away and other people need to keep telling you the reality of what's happening. And as much as you don't want to hear it and you might push that friend away completely, eventually you'll come back to that person. I'm so sorry. Thank you for telling me. Thank you for being honest. I want to just end with something positive. So how are you doing now? Oh, things are good. (laughs) Things are good now. I've got a new relationship, which has been a huge turning point. I mean, to start with leaving the relationship and eventually going out and dating again, it wasn't a very nice world. A woman with disability on internet dating, that's, that's a conversation for another point in time, believe me. It's a toxic world. We're very open to being targeted for people who want to abuse especially on online dating like Tinder. It's, it's quite horrific and I'd gotten to a point where I decided that I wasn't going to date anyone anymore and the partner I'm with now, he was the last person I was ever going to trust. <laughs> and I'd become so used to just expecting that was the way I was going to be treated. I remember telling a friend, you know, this is where I'm going, this is where I'm going to be. If I never come back, <laughs> um, please send the police. But he wasn't and he was respectful and he took time and that was part of rebuilding my trust in the world again rebuilding my trust in other people and so now I do I do have a much better life I've gotten to work with government for the last three years around all the reforms happening here in Victoria but also it's been a journey of unpacking everything that happened those 10 years I'm going to be unpacking for a very long time so whilst I am a completely different person to what what I was back then and and I'm happier and I'm stable and I have so many positive things the mental health impacts do go on for a long time. So I'm still working my way through them. I'm still struggling with them. Things are unbelievably, amazingly better, but I do struggle now with when I'm triggered, I, I go into disassociation. So I'm starting to make my way through dealing with disassociation and forgetting who I am, forgetting where I am. And that's going to be another journey of unpacking. So whilst everything is so much better, recovery is not static and recovery is not finite. You're not all of a sudden, I've got my stuff together, everything's great. I do have my stuff together, but it's better and it's a work in progress. And I do have days where I'm very depressed and I'm very sad or I'm very triggered or I'm afraid. There'll be trigger points like the COVID. The incidence of COVID right now has brought up so much fear in me so I've lost all of my income because I do conferences I do face-to-face work which is not happening at the moment so I felt stuck again all of a sudden because I'm financially reliant on another person to get by and that's incredibly terrifying so I've had to work through that so things are so much better but you know there's some days that aren't very pretty either and I think we need to acknowledge that as victims is that you know we do have good days and bad days and our mental health does impact us as we work through this to not 
paint this picture of, you know, I'm empowered, I'm recovered, it's great now, <laughs> but that it's a journey and that other victims, you know, I'm not a failure for not being completely and utterly mentally stable or got my mental health in order, but I'm not a failure either. Well, you're certainly not to me. You're a great inspiration to me and I'm sure to many of the listeners who are going to be hearing the story. And thank you very much for sharing it with us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.